And good morning. It's good to see all of you on this beautiful day as we gather on the, in the spirit of, of the season of Pentecost. This is indeed the, the day of Pentecost. You heard the reading earlier from Acts chapter 2, where there was a violent rushing wind, tongues of flame. It's an amazing story about, about these women and men who just weeks before had been filled with fear and worry and anxiety, who on the day of Pentecost suddenly become powerful prophets with an amazing word of God's love for the world. There was a church, a small one, that was celebrating Pentecost on this day like we are. And the pastor invited his congregation to find a moment to understand it at a deeper level and then called all the Sunday school teachers and said, would you please explain to each of your classes, whether you're in the little, little, little kids or the older adult class, would you explain to them Pentecost and what happened on that day? Well, this one teacher said, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to teach my little kids all about Pentecost. Her class was the five-year-olds. On that day, she had only three little girls, three little five-year-old girls. But she started right in. The day of Pentecost, she said, is the day that everyone in the church sat in a circle. And then there was this rushing wind that came running around the room, and there were tongues of flame, fire on top of everyone's head. And then they all began to speak in languages of different, different languages from different countries around the world so that everyone could hear the good news of God's love. Well, two of the little girls, their eyes were just glazed over, and they weren't paying attention. They were already bored. But one girl, her eyes were huge like saucers, and she finally got the, the guts to ask a question. And she said, you know what, teacher? I think I missed church on that day. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, beautiful, the beautiful part of that story is not that she misunderstood. The beautiful part is that she believed it could happen in her church. The beautiful part is she believed that somehow God's Spirit just might take over their church, give them a new beginning, a new hope. I'm wondering this morning, do we believe the same thing? Do we believe the Spirit of God is ready to, again, as it has in so many ways in our amazing and glorious past, take hold of our congregation and set us forward in faith and hope to a new day, to a new ministry filled with the power of God's love? I believe we do. I believe we, we, we are ready for that very thing to happen. The faith and hope of that little girl is alive and well at First Community Church. Now, I, I do know, I, I do know, I know there's been some concern about maybe not as many people in the pews as there used to be, or maybe not as many dollars in the plate as we'd like to see. Those are common concerns, in fact, around the United States of America in the church today. That's not unusual. But those issues are minor. Those are nothing. Are we going to pay attention? Oh, of course. But those things are really not that big of a deal in the wider understanding of what God's Spirit is wanting to do, the way God is ready to willing and willing to lead us to a new day. <clears throat> as I said, we will pay attention to those issues. But our strength as a congregation does not come from counting pennies. It doesn't come from wringing our hands in worry or, oh my goodness. No, no, it never has. Our church will find new life and excitement and passion when we embrace the missio day, that is the mission of God, when we allow ourselves to be captured by God's mission and vision, by God's desire to use us in the world to bring about God's spirit, spirit of joy and love wherever we may go, those other issues will begin to fade away as we'll be captured by God's power. And I got to tell you, I can't, I can't begin to tell you how many people have spoken to me 
about their faith and their hope in God as it's found in this congregation, in this church. Everywhere I go, every meeting I attend since I started back in March, March 15th, every conversation I have has, has a spirit of joy about it, of, ex of excitement and enthusiasm. I mean, consider, the Spirit has been at work in this church, through this church, through Deep Gria in India, through the Rafiki mission in Africa, through the work of, of Dominica and her orphanage in the Dominican Republic. The Spirit of, of, of God has been, been saving children's lives in the Dominican Republic because of gifts that were given to our foundation, gifts that many of you have supported and contributed of your, of your own. Here in Columbus, there are signs all over the place. This church has stood for two decades on the side of equal rights for the LGBT community. Our refugee task force is growing like never before. Families that are in war-torn countries are being brought to the United States by you and given a second chance at life, given new hope and a new way of, of living. Our music ministry, I, I, I'm gonna say this, and I'm gonna say it with them sitting right here. Our music ministry is, is as fine as any church in the United States of America. It's one of the best I've ever seen anywhere. You can apply, yeah. Ron Jenkins now owns, owes me lunch, just so you know. That's why I'm But it's not just the music. Our children and youth are revitalized in a way that we haven't seen in years. The pastoral care that we provide here through the work of Jim Long and his many teams is also unbelievable and amazing. Last week, Julie and I drove down to Akita. We had dinner with all the counselors, the 45 young adults, 19, 20, 21 years old, who will be giving their whole summer away to serve, to serve God at that beautiful campground. We had dinner with them, and then I talked to them about our theology and our beliefs in this congregation. And, and Julie and I, we were so excited driving back. We, we just talked the whole way back, just, just talked and talked and talked about how beautiful Akita was, but mostly about how amazing these kids are. We talked so much, I missed the exit for our house, and I think, I think we got to Dayton before we finally stopped. But it was a great conversation. It was an enthusiasm and excitement about the future of our church, and I could go on. There is much, there is much to rejoice for. But note this, though. Much of what we described has to do with the church wading into the deep waters of the pain and sorrow and hardship of life. The church is at its best when it reaches out to those who are suffering, to those in need of a new start, a new beginning, whether it's in Africa or India or across the street or around the corner. You see, that, that's why we worship. We come to be inspired by the music. We come to be welcomed at the table, to be challenged in the sermon, to then be sent out into the world to go wherever God's Spirit takes you, to be refreshed by the power of God's love and to let that very love then empower you in every relationship you have. And we need to be clear, it's not easy. The gospel reading points toward the task that is before us. Jesus declares that the gates of Hades, that is the gates of hell, will not stand against the church. Peter gives his, his confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, so inspired by this moment, he sees that it's a pivot point in his teaching with the disciples. He wants to know, are you ready to go with me all the way? Are you ready to take this road less traveled? And if you are, I'm declaring to you, he says to them, that not even the gates of Hades, not even hell itself, will stop us if you're ready. Now, a couple of notes here, by the way. 
The word for hell in Greek is indeed the word Hades. It's the word found in the New Testament, most often translated into hell. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, it's Sheol. They literally mean, though, Sheol and Hades, place of the dead. There was this understanding in antiquity that the place of the dead was a place below. Sometimes it was thought to be at the bottom of the sea, sometimes deep, deep within the bowels of, of the earth. Jesus is standing at the place in Caesarea Philippi that in antiquity was called the gate of Hades. It was this deep, deep, deep pool that they didn't have the ability to measure. And so the, the rumor built up, the myth built up that this is where Hades, the, the, where Hades, uh, the gates of Hades would be found. So Jesus stands there and says, yes, it's this place, right even here, not the gate of Hades even, can stop us in our work. Let's be clear too about what that also means. The gates of hell are not about a place where people are sent for eternal torment. Hell is not a place where you go if you've been a bad person. It is not a place you are sent to if you don't believe the right things. That is, and I want to be as clear as I can, and you can quote me if you want, a theological lie. No, no, and no. The gate of Hades, especially as Jesus is using it in this, in this context, in this moment, is basically anything or anyone or any institution that stands against the will of God. A politician, a government, a religion, even a church that gets in the way of God's will being done is considered to be part of Hades, of the work of death. The second thing I want to note in this text is, what, is the phrase son of God. At the time that Peter uses it, he's not arguing for the divinity of Christ. No, he's using a very common phrase. In Israel, in, the, in Jesus' day, anytime a, a leader or a king did the right thing, he was called a son of God. Anytime they were faithful to the needs of the people and led well according to the way God wanted them to lead, they were called a son of God. It wasn't a statement of divinity. It was a statement of fact. You are leading in the way that God wants us, wants us to go. You might, you might remember that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes what it is, what it is that he's called to do, to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Peter makes his confession then by saying, Jesus, that's you. You're the one. You're the son of God, the one we've been waiting for. Well, all of this is wonderful and amazing, but it clearly indicates that the mission of the church is not going to be easy. We're going to need a spirit of adventure and a willingness to risk and, and take the road less traveled. I, I love what Adam Hamilton said a couple of Sundays ago. How many of you heard Adam's sermon? Let me see, we're raising of hands. Many of you heard his sermon. It was marvelous. If you haven't seen it yet, go online on fcchurch.com or watch it on Facebook, on our church's Facebook page. It's, it's just a brilliant sermon, a word that I, I know I needed to hear. Adam says they developed in his church, his church in, in Kansas City uh, something they call discernment by nausea. Do you remember when he said that? Discernment by nausea. He says oftentimes in their congregation, they come to a fork in the road. One way feels safe, easy, and pleasant. Another way feels dangerous, difficult, hard. Kind of makes them sick to their stomachs. What they've noticed in their church is that most often, the way that God wants them to go is the one that's making them feel kind of sick to their stomach. If you're not feeling too good this morning, that might be the Spirit of God speaking to you. <laughs> Discernment by nausea. In the story we read today, Jesus is inviting his disciples to join him on a difficult road. He's saying, are you ready for this? Because the world needs us. The world needs us. 
They're desperate for salvation. Salvation from eternal torment? No, no, no. Salvation from a dull and meaningless life. The temptation, though, is to sit back and do nothing. There are many churches in the United States, I could point some of them to you, that are tempted, and maybe even here at First Community, we're tempted by this, that want to do nothing more than just get through our days with no emotion, no passion, no desire, just keep everything safe. I know in my life as a Christian and my work as a pastor, there are plenty of times when that's what I want too. I, just, I, I, I go to my office every morning early and I meditate and I pray, read the Bible. There are some days when I wish that's all I would do, you know? Just meditate and pray and read and, and have nice quiet conversations with Paul Bomber and Deb Lindsay and you know, maybe talk to some of you and then, then go home at night and watch the Cavaliers and the Warriors and the basketball game. And I can't tell you who I'm cheering for. I'll be in trouble, so I won't go there. <laughs> you know, some days I just want a nice, easy day like that. But I've done some research. I've done some reading. And I've, I've found that according to the research about churches that are growing and thriving, the ones that are are the ones that are filled with passion not necessarily polish. The polished churches, the slick churches where they've got everything figured out and everything's just kind of nice and neat and in order, they're starting to dwindle and die. It's the churches that have passion and enthusiasm and excitement that are they're thriving and, and growing. Adam Hamilton's church, for example, was founded in a mortuary, in a funeral home. They started with 150 people. A few weeks later, they had 300. A year or so later, they had five or 600. They had to find a new place to go. Uh, going to a funeral home on a Sunday morning is not my idea of a good time, but that's not what made it work for them. It was their passion. It was their enthusiasm, their excitement. On the day of Pentecost, the people who see Peter and all the other disciples preaching and teaching and getting excited about the Spirit of God, some of them think, they must be drunk. In fact, read Frederick Buechner, who's quoted in the bulletin this morning. He says they were indeed. They were drunk on God, on the very Spirit of God. Last week, I attended that First Community Foundation luncheon. It was a great celebration of the many ministries that our foundation supports here at, at First Community Church. I think there's over $8 million now in our foundation. About 4 to 5% of that every year is used to support a variety of ministries, both here in Columbus and indeed around the world. And we heard some of those stories. One of them was shared by Lauren Norelli. Lauren Norelli, who talked about our mission in the Dominican Republic and the lives that are literally being saved. I can even say this. Right now, there is someone eating a meal in the Dominican Republic because of the work of this church, because of the gifts of our foundation. Someone who might otherwise be dying from starvation is alive today because of this work. She gave a beautiful report on all that they've been doing. Afterwards, I talked to her, and she said, you know, when we first began this years ago, we had a very careful plan. We had a very conservative budget. We knew exactly what we were going to do and how we were going to approach this work. We knew it was important, but we weren't going to get too caught up in getting carried away. And she said, and then I went. And I went down there, and I saw the work, and she met Dominica, the woman who runs this orphanage, this amazing woman who's a, who's a Rotary scholar who came to the United States, got educated, and went back to serve her people. And Lauren said to me, I just came back to the United States and said, we need more donors, we need more people, we need more people involved, we need to send groups down there, there's so much more we can be doing. She got full of passion. Was it risky and scary and frightening? Absolutely. 
Did it mean at times she found herself in places she wouldn't necessarily want to be? Of course. But now, because she took a risk, because we jumped in with her, a new thing is happening, and lives are being saved. You see, this is why the church exists. This is why we, what we are called to do. Life is hard. We may want to sit back and, and, and wait for nothing more than a nice, smooth, easy day, but Jesus calls us to get out of our comfortable seats and get out in the world and make a difference. But here's some good news. You don't have to go to India or Africa. You don't have to go to the Caribbean or even to Akita. Although it's open house today, you might want to drive down there. No, it might be that right now what you need to do is turn to somebody you love if that's who you're sitting by, and tell them you love them. It might mean that in your neighborhood, there's somebody you haven't talked to for years because of that time when they did that thing, because they did that, you know, and it makes you a little sick to your stomach to think, I'm not sure I want to go talk to that person. It may be that the Spirit is whispering to you if you're, if you're getting a little nauseous, saying, yeah, it's time to go over to her to go over to him and say, here's my hand, I'm sorry. It may be there's someone in your neighborhood who just needs a good word. There may be somebody you know right now who's in hospice or who has a loved one who's in hospice who just needs to know that you care. A text, a call, an email might become for that person the very words of God. We wade into these situations not with judgment, but with grace. We go because our church has been called to go to the world to bring the goodness of love to everyone and anyone. Have you seen the movie Sully? The story of Sully Sullenberger, the pilot who landed that plane miraculously on the Hudson after they'd lost power in both engines? My favorite scene is the one where there's, they show the, the pilot of the, 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 pilot of the, of the ferry boat who's just doing his job, taking people across the river back and forth to and from work, to and from home. He's just doing his job when he looks out the window and that plane's just come right along parallel to him almost as it lands in the water. Now what did he do next? Do you remember, have you seen the movie? What did he do next? Did they have a committee meeting? <laughs> did they check their vision and mission for ministry and say, well, is this something? No, they turned the boat. And on their way, did they stop to ask, are they Democrats or Republicans? No, they did not. Did they stop to ask, are they Christians or Jews, Muslims or atheists? No, none of that. What did they do? They turned the boat. They headed, their mission had landed right in front of them. Later in that same scene, it shows a bunch of New York City cops who are, who are divers, putting on their scuba gear, jumping into a helicopter, flying out to where that plane is floating along in the, in the Hudson, and they jump down into the frigid and frightening waters. Why? Because, because it, was, it was an easy thing to do? No, it was their mission, their calling. I love that image. It's the perfect image of the church. We're called to steer our ministry, to steer our congregation, to steer ourselves towards wherever the world needs us most, whether that's across the street or around the globe. The Spirit of God is calling to not bring judgment, but hope. Not polish, but passion. Not exclusion, 
but invitation. Is it scary and frightening? Darn right it is. It would, if, it was, if it wasn't worth doing, it wouldn't be scary. In the name of the God who loves us all, let us take on this task and move forward. Let us pray, please. Good and gracious God, we're grateful for the way your spirit continues to inspire and motivate us. May that same spirit take a hold of us even now as we give ourselves over to you in the spirit of the one who loves us all and in whose name we pray. Amen.